Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Aaron Weinacht, author of the book Nikolai Trinisevsky and Ayn Rand, Russian Nihilism Travels to America. Aaron, welcome to the New Books Network. Oh, thank you for having me, Mark. Well, thank you for agreeing to be on the show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, I, uh, I'm a history professor out in Dillon, Montana, uh, which, um, oh, I, I like it here. Uh, lots of people, I think, would consider it punishment for some kind of sin they hadn't committed uh, uh, since the county I live in is the same size as the state of Connecticut and has like 9,000 people in it. But uh, anyway, I, I like it here quite a bit, and uh, I... Uh, uh, my job enabled me to uh, finally get around to rehabbing my doctoral thesis, which was on uh, uh, nihilism in Russia in the 1860s and Ayn Rand. And it took me a while to, to get the manuscript in a uh, shape I was happy with and get some funding to go do a little more research and so on. Uh, but uh, I finally got there better, better late than never, I guess. So this project's been about, well, probably... Oh, 10, 12 years in the making. <laughs> uh, so what was it that led you to choose uh, this as your dissertation topic? I mean, it's it's a fascinating one, and it was one that, that I, I thought really was so relevant, not just to, uh, you know, intellectual history and thought, but I mean, given, you know, Ayn Rand's, Ayn Rand's presence in uh, America today, it, it it was such a fascinating. It was so fascinating to see you trace out these connections and these parallels. W- w- why did you settle upon this as a topic? Well, it was kind of an accident, really. Uh, you know, I mean, I was kind of in the market for a a, a dissertation topic. I was kind of getting to that point. Um, of my grad school studies, I went to uh, the University of Kentucky and in, in Lexington and uh, studied with a couple of. Uh, I'll just give a shout out here: really uh, fantastic uh, graduate mentors, uh, Karen Patron, who's a uh, uh, modern Russian historian, and then uh, Dan Rowland, who's one of the uh, small coterie of uh, Russian medievalists and early modernists out there. And so, anyway, I was just kind of getting to the point where. I needed to really be thinking about what to write my dissertation on. And uh, I was in this uh, graduate seminar and I was reading a, uh, uh, some, some material by uh, a Russian journalist by the name of uh, Dmitry Pisarev, uh, who was writing in the, uh, mostly in the 1860s and who's, you know, one of the kind of central characters in the book along with uh, Nicholas Chernyshevsky. And uh, at some point, I think when I was an undergraduate, I had randomly, I think I'd vaguely heard of Anne Rand. And at some point I had picked up a, a copy of Rand's uh, novel, The Fountainhead um, and, and read it. And uh, I don't really remember why, but uh, I did. And uh, anyway, so I was reading uh, reading Pisarev for this class, and uh, I don't know. At one point, I just he's talking about um, egoism and the importance of the self, and uh, you know, kind of the supremacy of the individual as the, the kind of irreducible basic unit of society, and so on. And uh, I don't know. At one point, it just occurred to me, man, this 
kind of sounds a little bit like Anne Rand. It was kind of an idle thought at this point. I didn't even know Rand had been an immigrant from, from Russia at all. And uh, so anyway, I just happened to walk into my um, uh, doctoral thesis advisor's office one day, uh, uh, Karen Patron, and uh, and said, uh, you know, Karen, I was just reading a piece that I have here, and I don't know, it sounds kind of like Anne Rand, doesn't it? And I'll never forget, her eyes got really big, and she almost levitated out of her chair. I, was, uh, I don't know how she <laughs> pulled that off, you know, but... Uh, uh, Anyway, you know, as academics, we get excited about the most uh, unaccountable things. But uh, but anyway, um, she looked at me and said, have you ever read Atlas Shrugged? Because I, I then kind of explained to her what uh, what seemed kind of similar about those two things. And I said, no, nah, I've never heard of it, you know. And she said, you need to go and read Atlas Shrugged like right now. Uh, like leave my office this instant <laughs> and and go get yourself a copy of Atlas Shrugged. And and, uh, uh, and as I was leaving her office uh, to do my uh, you know advisor's bidding as as one should in these matters, uh, I heard her yell behind me. I think you have your dissertation topic. And, uh, and of course, I'm I'm thinking. Well, I don't know why, but I guess I'll go read the book and see what she's talking about. Well. Um, you know, Rand's, Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged, for those in the audience that have never read it, is, uh, you know, better than a thousand pages long. And uh, I must admit, uh, when I picked it up and started seeing what she was talking about, um, I, I may be the only person on earth who has ever read Atlas Shrugged in one sitting. I, I am not making that up. <laughs> I was awake for like 14 straight hours and read that book or whatever it took me, you know. And uh, so anyway, that was how... Uh, I, uh, I ended up with this as my uh, my uh, doctoral thesis topic when I realized that, wow, Rand came from Russia in the uh, early 20s to this country, and yet somehow, you know, so in uh, 1863, uh, when the, the nihilist movement really uh, got off the ground in its fashion with uh, the publication of uh, Chernyshevsky's book, What is to be Done?, uh, these two things are so much alike that there, there's got to be some connection, right? There's something here. And so that's when I started working my way backwards from Rand, trying to figure out if my, you know, kind of hunch uh, was uh, was right. And obviously, since I, you know, managed to get a book published about it, my conclusion was that there was something there that was interesting, <laughs> although I'm sure that uh, um, I haven't seen any reviews of the book yet, but presumably, uh, uh you know, this or that reviewer will, uh, you know, pick a hole in it where I've overdetermined the thesis or something like that. But to answer your question, that's uh, that's how I got on to this topic. So it was kind of a happy accident, really. Hmm. Well, uh, so a lot of people uh, who are listening to this or who will listen to this are, are probably familiar with uh, uh, Ayn Rand and and uh, and objectivism and, and and a philosophy that this had a very large impact upon uh, you know, American political discourse and American thought, but Russian nihilism is, is a subject that might be uh, a, a bit more unfamiliar. And I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by explaining what Russian nihilism is, uh, maybe the, the the origins of it, uh, how it developed in the nineteenth century, and and how it, what how it was. You think that I that Ayn Rand might have been exposed to it uh, at the, uh, prior to coming to America. So, um, you know, whenever. 
I suppose probably the most visible usage of the word nihilism uh, in American culture is is probably that fantastic line from The Big Lebowski where, uh, you know, John Goodman says, whoa, you know, say what you want about national socialism. At least it's an ethos. Uh, but uh, uh, so, you know, kind of the uh, I mean, literally nihilism is belief in nothing. Right. Which isn't i mean we all believe in something uh, in general so it must uh, you know have a slightly more nuanced meaning uh than uh, than that so uh what that speaks to is the reality that uh the group of people who became known as the uh, as the nihilists uh especially uh, nikolai chernyshevsky and uh Dmitry Pisarev, who both of whose names we've mentioned already, who are uh, doing most of their, uh, you know, writing that really made uh, made a splash uh, in the uh, in the eighteen sixties, especially the early 18, uh, 1860s. Um, so the name nihilist was really applied to them by their enemies, uh, in particular. Uh, the the Russian novelist uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and then uh, the, another uh, Russian uh, writer uh, by the name of Ivan Turgenev, whose name is probably a little less well known in in the West than uh, Dostoevsky is, but uh, his book Fathers and Sons, or sometimes it's translated as Fathers and Children, uh, you know, is is pretty uh, pretty well known in the West. And so, uh, from the point of view of um, uh, writers like uh, Turgenev and Dostoevsky, uh, the reason the people are criticizing uh, should be dubbed nihilists is because, uh, you know, from their point of view, they want to tear down everything in society uh, and, and culture that, that we hold dear. Um, and so we, uh, we dub them uh, nihilists, uh, you know, probably the most famous uh, literary character who, uh, uh, that that label nihilist uh, was applied to uh, would be uh, one of the main characters in in Turgenev's novel uh, Fathers and Sons. His name is Bar- uh, excuse me Bazarov, and uh, uh, and Bazarov is is kind of a uh, in a way, he's a kind of radical empiricist, or we might call him a, a vulgar empiricist. Um, he spends all of his time in the book dissecting frogs uh, and, and so on. And uh, he's not so much a real scientist as he is a kind of um, aesthetic scientist. I, I suppose you might think now of the difference between uh, you know science and, and scientism. Sometimes that word gets uh, bandied around uh, these days. So uh, uh, then uh, in, in Dostoevsky's uh, novels, uh, in particular, he gets onto this a little bit in, in uh, Crime and Punishment with the, the main character, uh, Raskolnikov, um, the literal meaning of that name being schismatic. Uh, so, you know, that kind of gives us the, the sense that, that we're, we're kind of tearing things down a little bit. But then Dostoevsky really gets on to uh, his, his, his main attack on the nihilists in his fiction would be in his novel, uh, sometimes translated as demons, uh, sometimes translated as the, uh, as the possessed uh, playing on that scene from the Bible where uh, all the, the spirits of the demons go into the pigs and the pigs all go over the cliff. Uh, so in, in both cases, both in, in Dostoevsky and Turgenev's, um, uh, works. Uh, 
the general sense is that there's this kind of um, youthful army of, of intellectual and cultural barbarians uh, who are busily in the process of tearing down all that we hold sacred and all that everybody else should hold sacred too. And, uh, and so that's, that's how the name uh, uh, nihilists uh, get, gets applied to people like uh, uh, Chernyshevsky and, uh, and Pisarev, who, uh, you know, we can get to the, the substance of Chernyshevsky's novel uh, here in a minute, but like just to give, you know, give an example, uh, three of the characters in the book appear to live together in a, a menage a trois, right? So we're, you know, kind of tearing down uh, you know, standard, uh, uh, you know, ways we think about marriage and so on. Um, or, you know, sometimes people who are followers of, of Chernyshevsky's, you know, kind of purposefully flouted social conventions, you know, had women going around in, uh, uh, pants and smoking cigarettes and things like that kind of flouting, uh, conventions of the, uh, of the day. So, uh, you know, I think that's it's probably useful to go into the idea of or what nihilism meant in that specific context in the 1860s, uh, because somewhat later, particularly in the 1880s, uh, you see kind of in the Western press references to Russian nihilists. But usually what they're talking about there is actually people who were involved in the terrorist movement uh, trying to assassinate uh, Alexander the uh, the third or, and, at, and successfully having assassinated Alexander the uh, second in 1881. And so you know, there's some relationship there uh, in that uh, the kind of the 1880s era of quote unquote nihilists might have uh, said that they drew some inspiration uh, from the earlier uh, nihilists, but but really the core of, of 1860s uh, nihilism is about an emphasis on the kind of irreducibility of the self and uh, uh, how the, the, the self, the, the individual ego is really the uh, uh, what we ought to care about and the freedom of that, that self is what we ought to promote in society. And so, uh, you know, if you want to draw some radical politi- political implications from that, like in the Russian case, we should get rid of the czar, uh, um, you, you certainly can. Uh, but ultimately... Um, you know, nihilism, I think, is is really about a particular view of the self and whatever political implications we want to draw from that are kind of, um, you know, second order consequences of, of some more important first order uh, principles. So um, I guess where I've got to here, um, correct me if, I've, if you think I've skipped over anything that uh, the audience might find useful, Mark, but I think that kind of leads us up to then how might how might Rand have been exposed to these kinds of ideas? That's kind of where we're at, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so, uh, I mean, in a way, uh, Chernyshevsky's novel, What is to be Done, was so ubiquitous in, uh, in Russian society that, I mean, in some ways it's, it's uh, you, you might ask a different question, which is, I mean, how could one avoid it? Uh, because uh, uh, really, Chernyshevsky was was everywhere. Um, I give you an, give you an example. This one's a kind of kind of humorous in a in a in a dark sort of way. Um, there are uh, uh, police reports uh, apparently, uh, which indicate 
that I got ahead of myself there. there. There's a scene in in what is to be done, where one of the main revolutionary characters, a guy by the name of Rachmetov, who's kind of this. Um, I, I cast him in the book as is in a way kind of an analog to the John Galt character uh, in um, in Atlas Shrugged. Um, uh, he's kind of this uh, this this traveling uh, revolutionary uh, agitator. Uh, there's a there's a famous scene in, in Chernyshevsky's novel where he uh, he pounds all of these nails through a board really close together, and then he sleeps on the spiky end of the nails uh, poking through the board. And I, I think the the general interpretation of this this scene is that he's uh, he's kind of preparing himself to be tortured here by the the secret police if he gets caught. He was kind of toughening himself up for the the, the revolution that, that lies ahead. And uh, in in police reports, actually, there's at least uh, one recorded case that uh, other scholars have uncovered of somebody actually doing this in real life, kind of inspired, apparently, by, by Chernyshevsky's novel. Um, likewise, I, I mentioned the uh, infamous House of Three, uh, as they say uh, earlier, that, that happens in, in Chernyshevsky's novel. And if you look at the, uh, the personal lives of some of the uh, uh, artists and intellectuals that were important to what's often called the Silver Age in Russia in the 1890s, kind of this outpouring of artistic expression and, uh, and so on, uh, you can find... Um, uh, a couple of cases that I'm aware of, of uh, artists, you know, poets, musicians, etc., cetera, uh, attempting uh, such experiments and, and they're reading Chernyshevsky and, and so on. So um, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, Chernyshevsky's book uh, becomes a bit of a Bible uh, for disaffected Russian youth after its publication in 1863, um, you know, which there again, uh, you know, immediately uh, makes one think of the status that books like uh, Atlas Shrugged and, and The Fountainhead and so on have among, uh, you know, youth in this country uh, for whom, you know, we have this feeling that there's something wrong in the world today. And I don't know what it is. It's the, uh, yeah, it's the I, I was thinking like, like maybe Catcher the Rye or, yeah. or, or On the Road. You know, this is a book that they adopt and try to live for a while because it just it if it hits it at the right time, it it just, you know, clicks with their outlook. Yeah, that's that's one of the points I'm trying to make in the book is that it's not just that Chernyshevsky and Rand say similar things. It's that the, their book uh, appeal to the same kind of people at the same kind of stage in life. There's, uh, you know, I'm certainly no uh, no psychologist or anything like that, but I, you know, I, I do point to a little bit of uh, just kind of pretty basic developmental psych research in in the uh, in the book that suggests that there's a certain stage in life at which uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of theses really uh, really appeal. And uh, and so what I'm trying to do in the book then is is chart out a logical uh, course by which Rand could have, uh, you know, come in contact with the kinds of ideas Chernyshevsky is laying out and what is to be done. And also, uh, you know, Pisarev's writings, which were you know pretty widely popular, you know, hey, have you read you know, the most recent uh, article Pisarev wrote uh, kind of uh, environment and. Uh, so, 
uh, you know, you've got the uh, you know, very much a uh, or the sorry, I'm being incoherent here. The uh, uh, very much the high importance of uh, uh, Chernyshevsky's writings uh, to uh, people writing in the in the Silver Age and so on. Um, and so the the argument I'm really making in the book is that um, that Chernyshevsky's name and the, and the nihilist legacy never really goes away uh, after the 1860s are over. There was a there was an assassination attempt on Alexander II in 1866, a guy by the name of Dmitry Karakazov, and um, there was quite a bit of clampdown after that censorship and so on. Um, I should mention, by the way, that Chernyshevsky actually wrote his novel in, while he was in prison. Um, which uh, is maybe notable because, you know, we think about, you know, clampdowns and Russian censorship and so on. Uh, So the fact that Chernyshevsky got permission to write that novel while he was in prison has got to be one of the most spectacular errors of censorship in the, in the history of censorship. Um, In fact, it's actually even, even better. He, uh, he was writing it and he sent it to his, uh, to his editor, um, of the, uh, the, the journal, um, that he had, you know, generally published most of his, uh, his work in, uh, the contemporary, it was called, uh, a guy by the name of Nekrasov, uh, who apparently came to the prison and picked up the manuscript. And then, uh, Nekrasov actually lost it in a cab, uh, on the way, apparently back to the editorial office. And, uh, Believe it or not, the manuscript was eventually returned to him by the Russian police. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, so the Russian the Russian police organs of various kinds are directly responsible for the publication of one of the most subversive novels ever written in uh, in history, which is an, an irony to say the least. And uh, so, so anyway, then. Uh, you know, Rand is is a kid in the early early twentieth century, and uh, so you know one one answer that's part of this very long answer to your question is uh, that in a lot of ways Chernyshevsky is just so ubiquitous that you could read what he's you could read ideas that he had and even not not even know that he was one of the people who kind of started talking about a you know a radical individualism that rejects uh, you know social convention and uh, and so on. He's just kind of in the air, uh, and you know I've I have yet to run across a I suppose we might call it the smoking gun. Um, you know, I've been through Rand's papers. Uh, Rand was uh, um, notably reticent to acknowledge intellectual debts. And, um, and frankly, though, it'd be kind of surprising if she did admit any kind of debt to Chernyshevsky, especially because the Bolsheviks like to claim uh, the nihilists as kind of one of their own uh, precursors. And so because of Rand's, uh, you know, obvious anti-communism and so on, I think in hindsight, it'd be kind of surprising if she had, you know, acknowledged such a debt. Uh, so in a way, I'm kind of arguing uphill here in that uh, in the face of, of uh, resolute silence about most of her uh, influences on the Russian side of the house, I'm trying to make an argument here that acknowledged or not, um, that uh, that influence is uh, is there, so uh, I think that's uh, that's that's kind of how I'm arguing that the uh, uh, that this uh, 
you know, set of ideas emerging in the 1860s really get uh, get carried forward into Rand's thought, uh, which the, she then you know brings uh, brings to the United States, and uh, you know, and the rest, as they say, is uh, is history. Well, uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged is, a, is is a novel that is you know ha- has a large enough cultural footprint that a lot of people are, are familiar with it, even with having without having read it. But but Trini said. Trindyevsky's uh, "What Is to Be Done" is a novel that that most of our listeners probably are, are not as familiar with. I was wondering if you could briefly sketch out the novel, the plot, and, and the key characters before we talk a bit more about the parallels between that and uh, Anne Rand's most famous work. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. Um, so uh, uh, the subtitle to Chernyshevsky's novel is uh, it's called "Tales About the New People," and uh, He's what Chernyshevsky is is uh, playing off of with that title is the idea in circulation among uh, cultural and political dissidents um, in the uh, really from the from the eighteen forties uh, on as the, as the movement gets more more self focused rather than outright having outright political agitation as its uh, as its main uh, goal. Um, his his uh, his idea is that what we need in society is a new kind of person, or that once we've kind of burnt down these uh, you know stuffy old institutions of traditional society and culture, this is going to make way for a new kind of uh, kind of person uh, to emerge. And so, really, then his uh, uh, what is to be done is, as the subtitle suggests, uh, just a story about uh, this new kind of person uh, who's going to emerge, albeit some, some new kinds of people who are kind of on the leading edge uh, of this uh, this new movement. But it's, it's interesting to note that uh, Chernyshevsky makes a real point um, it clear through the book of continually reminding the reader that these new people he's talking about are really not unique at all. That they're the future is just going to take the fact that this is the way people are uh, for granted. Uh, in a way, the uh, the character Akhmedov uh, is really the only. In, in, in Chernyshevsky's definition of usual and unusual, he's really the only unusual character in there as the, as the author wants to portray them. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> basically what happens is uh, the, the three main uh, characters, the, uh, the book um, uh, revolves around uh, two, two men and one woman, uh, Kersanov, um, uh, Lapukov and uh, Vera Pavlovna are the name of the, the three uh, characters. And uh, uh, Vera Pavlovna is uh, a part of a, you know, a real phenomenon. It's sometimes called fictitious marriage, where basically what she does is she gets married in order to escape a kind of uh, oppressive family uh, scenario, or at least uh, she sees it as, as oppressive. And uh, so... Two of the characters uh, uh, get married, and uh, all three of them are in uh, in medicine. They're in in training to be in uh, in medicine of uh, of some kind. And so here you've got you know a kind of uh, kind of backhanded uh, reference to the the importance of the of not so much of science but of the idea of science. Um, so. Uh, 
these, uh, it's basically the book just follows the lives of these three characters um, and some, some kind of high points of, of this following of their lives is uh, uh, Vera Pavlovna. And, you know, I just realized that uh, I can't remember which of the two guys she's, she's married to first, uh, which is really bad. But anyway, um, she realizes that they're not really in, in love with each other uh, anymore, but that she is in love with the other one. And uh, so that's how this uh, this house of three business uh, gets started, as, as Chernyshevsky pretty clearly suggests that the solution to the problem of this love triangle is for them just to just say, uh, you know, well, let's have an 1860s version of polyamory. Uh, and... Uh, so that's that's kind of one of the one of the high points. And at one point, the uh, the guy she's married to first actually uh, she she won't kind of take the plunge. So he actually fakes his own death uh, to kind of get himself out of the way, uh, so that she can uh, uh, shack up with the other guy. And uh, then another another uh, one of the real high points, in some ways, I, I think anyway, kind of the high point of the book is. Uh, uh, Vera Pavlovna starts this dress shop, um, which uh, eventually she decides to run on what amounts to kind of communal uh, principles, a kind of employee-owned, uh, equal profit sharing, and so on. And uh, here's where the uh, the British uh, utopian socialist Robert Owen uh, is important, and that uh, uh, Chernyshevsky. Um, you know, very much kind of has, uh, you know, Owen's uh, various uh, enterprises in mind. Um, for those who haven't heard of Owen, you know, he, he uh, turned a lot of the management of his factories in England over to his employees. And he's the one who, uh, you know, made that attempt at a kind of communal living experiment uh, here in the United States. Uh, started a, It's called New Harmony, Indiana, and that's still a town in, in Indiana. In fact, I actually grew up not too far from there mostly. But uh, anyway... Um, so what happens then is over the course of the book, uh, Vera Pavlovna's uh, dress shop, kind of communal business enterprise, uh, sort of metastasizes. Uh, it becomes such a, it, it works so well that the fact that it works well starts to affect the society around it uh, kind of in these uh, 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 irresistible ways. Uh, here, Chernyshevsky probably has a bit in mind uh, something like uh, the French utopian socialist Charles Foyer's idea of the philanthropy, uh, where, you know, once we build one of these kind of uh, utopian socialist communes, uh, the, the logic of it uh, will become kind of invincible and will spread uh, all over the uh, all over the world. And so, uh, you know, Chernyshevsky's novel isn't just about the lives of these characters as they, uh, you know, kind of discover the, the importance of a, a quote unquote scientific worldview and start throwing off social conventions as they see it that don't match up with that. Uh, but it's also a story about about revolution. Um, and uh uh, Chernyshevsky has to leave the, the revolution out, uh, possibly because he was writing it while he was in prison. And uh, even if the censors weren't, you know, were, were not too bright and let him publish it, it's hard to imagine that they'd miss where he actually describes the revolution. Uh, 
But then, uh, uh, you know, we might be a little more critical and say, well, part of why he leaves it out is because he doesn't know how it's going to work. But, uh, you know, I leave that uh, if anybody wants to tackle Chernyshevsky, uh, you can decide uh, which of those scenarios is more likely. But uh, anyway, uh, so then in the last part of the novel, uh, uh, Vera Pavlovna has this big vision and uh, in it, she's she's seeing the future. This uh, uh, this future in which uh, we're living in these kind of uh, communes, a la Owen and uh, Foyer, a little bit, and uh, and all of this has ultimately uh, gone back to her decision that what she really wanted to do was start a, a dress shop on these kind of communal principles uh, because she. Uh, she wants to because that's kind of her her individual passion is to do uh, something like that. So um, this is this is maybe the right time to mention where a thesis like mine and this book is is swimming a little bit upstream here in that uh, no doubt at least a few listeners and maybe you as well, Mark, are wondering. So it sounds like Chernyshevsky's writing a utopian socialist novel. So what the heck does that have to do with a radical individualist like Anne Rand? And uh, so so my argument, uh, I'm, in a way, I'm kind of reinterpreting what Chernyshevsky was really after in that book. Um, he's often... You know, uh, he's often been, in hindsight, kind of wedded to the uh, the origins of the the Russian Revolution and so on. That that novel often gets kind of co opted into that you know kind of long uh, story to the extent that we can put the revolution down to you know being the product of people with ideas. Uh, but but the argument I'm trying to make here is that uh, uh, what nihilism was really about was the, the freedom of the individual and that to the extent that people exercising that freedom results in some kind of socialist revolution. That's that's kind of a second order consequence of more important uh, first order principles. And so that's where, you know, to the extent that I'm I'm trying to uh, to nuance what people have already said about Chernyshevsky, um, that might be where I could be accused of, uh, you know, being a little bit of a heretic in terms of the, uh, you know, interpretive history of that book. So there's a, uh, that's a bit of an overview, I think, of what Chernyshevsky is up to in that novel. I was thinking it, it's, it definitely is heretical, given what you described on the surface with, uh, you know, with, 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 you know, utopian socialism of the early 19th century and how that is, seems to be diametrically at odds with a group of people for whom, Socialism nowadays is an epithet, but when you go into your book, and 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 the, and the bulk of your book is a comparison between the two books, and you and you and it's a comparison that you don't go about chapter by chapter, but what you do instead is you go about it in terms of key themes, and, and we're not just talking about the fact that you know the, the themes are are like you know literary themes. You're talking about the ideological themes. And it's it's the kind of thing that that that, that I, I thought was very interesting, not just from the, the standpoint of of uh, Anne Rand's writings and objectivism, but also about how we sometimes misinterpret or or assume incorrectly things about socialism that the socialists themselves didn't didn't necessarily believe that we're, they were not talking about the. Uh, the the Orwellian collectivist state where where everybody is a drone where, where that the vision that that people like Tringesky and uh, the the nihilists were talking about was one in which the individual was not going to be you know crushed in a totalitarian state but instead become supreme 
and, and that's where and, and, and as you draw it, that, that those those themes those in, in chapters that becomes uh, you know very that's when I, I started to recognize those, those parallels you were describing. And I was wondering if we could start by going into uh, the, those uh, parallels now, uh, starting with your, your examination of of egotism as it, or, or egoism as as it existed in the uh, two books. Yeah, the. Um... The, both characters are really defining uh, uh, egoism as the uh, as the principal. Sorry, I think I said characters. I meant Chernyshevsky and Rand and and, and Pisarev as well. Uh, they're defining the egoism as the right way to look at at uh, at the individual person. Uh, they're they're saying that ultimately, uh, what it means to live a good life. And to let other people live their good lives too is for the individual to uh, to reign supreme, and that there's very little uh, that there's little, if any, scenario in which we can say that one person is obligated to sacrifice for somebody else. Now, you know, a, a person uh, you know could in fact uh, sacrifice for someone else, uh, but. Uh, Chernyshevsky and Pisarev and, and then later Rand, uh, when you read them carefully, uh, it's, it's, it's inescapable the sense that if personal sacrifice on behalf of someone else uh, is going gonna, is gonna to be necessary, it's going to be a pretty rare case. Uh, kind of a kind of an unusual uh, or, or spectacular uh, case. And so, uh, you know, that's they're not talking about uh, the the 1860s uh, crowd they're not talking about this in a in a vacuum um, the uh, the German I suppose we could call him an anarchist in a way the uh, the German anarchist anarchist Max Stirner uh, wrote a book in the 1840s called the ego and its own uh, in which he kind of lays out the uh, uh, the absolute uh, primacy of a of the individual as a uh, as the the kind of intellectual groundwork for an argument for anarchism, and uh, and so on. So the you know Chernyshevsky and and Pisarev aren't the only people, uh, of course, uh, who are talking about uh, egoism, uh, but uh, they. They uh, they do it in a Russian context that's that's fairly unique, uh, so I should probably uh, speak to that for a minute. So um, the uh, I mentioned earlier the uh, uh, Turgenev novel Fathers and Sons, and what that what that novel's title references is there were a whole generation of uh, revolutionaries that came out of the 1840s, uh, in particular. Uh, Probably the three most important names that come out of that would be uh, Vissarion Belinsky, uh, Alexander Herzen, and then uh, Michael Bakunin, uh, who later became kind of a, a globe-trotting anarchist and feuded with Marx at the uh, second media meetings of the uh, Second uh, Communist International and so on. But uh, anyway, uh, what, uh, what Turgenev was doing in that novel was laying out... Um, this uh, this kind of generational difference in uh, um, among the ranks of the Russian dissidents. So there's the 1840s generation, um, and they just got dubbed the men of the 40s, as the uh, uh, 1860s radicals got later dubbed the men of the 60s, the uh, the Shesti Uh 
And uh, so the the dissidents of the 1840s uh, say we'll take as a just a test example somebody like Alexander Herzen, uh, who eventually emigrated to England and uh, you know did most of his journalism from there and so on. Uh, they're really outward focused. They uh, um, they want to uh, you know reform or or burn down and insert a new uh, Russian state. Um, so. Uh, for a uh, uh, and, and in the 1840s, uh, the context in which they were doing that was in during the reign of the Tsar Nicholas I, who, uh, especially after 1848, um, uh, created this uh, extremely oppressive environment for intellectuals. Um, just to give a, a kind of humorous example, um, under Nicholas I, they actually censored ellipses from physics textbooks. And, uh, you know, if you know anything about the history of astronomy, you know, ellipses hadn't been controversial since Kepler. Uh, and uh, so so they're, they're, they're thinking about what's wrong in, in Russian society is very much outwardly focused, you know, a, a kind of you know, revolutionary thought as, as you might expect it to occur. You know, we, we have this kind of political system. We should have a different one. Here's what that should look like and so on. Um, but uh, there was a there was a brief honeymoon kind of period between the dissidents and the and the state. Uh, when uh, Nicholas's successor, uh, Alexander II, emancipated the serfs in uh, 1861. So uh, when uh, when Alexander II took the throne, he, he signaled, you know, pretty clearly that uh, he had a pretty major reform program in mind. And it took a while uh, to uh, get that off the ground. But, you know, for the intellectuals, the real, you know, kind of culminating moment was the emancipation of the, uh, the Russian serfs. <laughs> And uh, so there was this period where dissident intellectuals could, um, you know, maybe think to themselves, well, you know, maybe it's possible with the right prompting or with the right people in charge, you know, with the right philosopher king in, in charge uh, to, uh, to, you know, see a reform, to see us heading towards the kind of society we want to have. Uh, but then, as, as you might expect, the, uh, the honeymoon period uh, wore off uh, pretty uh pretty quickly. And so what happened was um, the this next generation of Russian dissidents that uh, have come to be called the men of the 60s, they don't have a lot of outlet uh, for their, uh, you know, dissident ideas. Uh, they don't, they don't, in a way, they're kind of pessimists in that, uh, uh, you know, earlier dissidents, you know, even going back to the, the Decemberist revolt in 1825, where there was an attempted coup, an attempt to put in uh, probably some kind of constitutional monarchy. Um, they don't, they're, they're shifting their focus. Uh, their, their focus shifts from, away from what kind of political system should we have to what kind of person should the new people of Chernyshevsky's subtitle be? And their answer to that question is to, to be uh, ultra-focused on the self, uh, to, to see in the, the, the egoist self as being uh, the kind of ur unit of, of society and that everything uh, that we're wondering whether that's a good thing or a bad thing gets judged on the on the basis uh, of the of the self, and so that uh, um, to take uh, Chernyshevsky's novel as an example, um, you know Vera Pavlovna's character in there makes it quite 
clear that it's not like she's starting out to build this socialist commune. The reason this socialist commune is good is because that's what she wanted to do. Uh, that that's ultimately what makes it good, and so the the commune that emerges uh, is very much kind of symbolizes uh, Vera Pavlovna's. Uh, imagine the word you know, "I" and capital and a capital letter with quotation marks around it. Um, that uh, uh, that that communal enterprise becomes kind of the sign to the universe of her eye of her her ego. See this thing here, uh, Vera Pavlovna did that, and uh, you know if you've read uh, uh, Atlas Shrugged, for instance, or for that matter, The Fountainhead, um, you know you see that same basic idea come out um, quite clearly. Of course, in the case of The Fountainhead, it's Howard Roark's. Um, uh, you know, architectural uh, creations, um, which he then, you know, blows up rather than, you know, let someone else have them. And uh, and in the case of Atlas Shrugged, there's this uh, scene where uh, the steel tycoon character in there, his name is Hank Reardon, he's kind of standing up uh, on this hill looking down at his uh, big steel-making enterprise. And he kind of has this little uh, mental dialogue with himself where he says, uh, and I, I'm, if this isn't an exact quote, it's pretty close. Uh, he says that, you know, he, he wished that his sign out in front of his, uh, his mill, instead of saying reared in metal, could instead say reared in life. And so the, the idea of that is that this, you know, a bit like Vera Pavlovna's dress shop that uh, uh, Reardon's uh, uh, industrial uh, steel enterprise kind of serves as his shout of his I exist uh, to the uh, to the universe. So, and uh, there's a couple of a uh, couple of examples uh, from the uh, some of the sources in the book of this uh, very close focus on egoism and how that kind of serves as the the absolutely unshakable uh, you know first principle from which everything else in the books kind of follows. And that's something that you then pick up and uh, elaborate upon when you start talking about the, the uh, heroes of the two novels and how they embody that that notion of it and, and the idea of, of people in fetter. I, I, and this is something where uh, a lot of people sometimes draw the analogy with, with Nietzsche's writings. And Nietzsche does get a mention in your book, but uh, you know, the, these ideas that you're talking about, you know, Trinjewski's writing, uh, you know, before Nietzsche is, and and he, he he the idea is that that the development of heroism in his book, the heroes that he advances as these individuals are are, are very much uh, ones that that, uh, that 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 prefigure uh, Rand's concept of them in, in, in Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, I I think so. Um, you know, certainly the. Uh, uh, the idea of the heroic is is very much a kind of central principle of uh, of both books. Um, you know, and it's interesting. It's funny because not only is the idea of the heroic central, but also the idea that we think that these characters are heroic, but really in the future, we won't see them that way because everybody will be like them. So in a, in a funny sense, they're also kind of unheroic. Uh, that's, uh, uh, that's also quite, uh, quite a common theme in, um, in both, uh, in both books. So, um, 
you know, probably the, I mean, the most obviously uh, capital H heroic character in uh, in in uh, what is to be done is the the revolutionary character uh, Rachmedov, and uh, you know, literary scholars have have had kind of a time figuring out how to um, how Rachmedov kind of fits. Uh, in that novel. Now, you know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, put too much on that because, of course, um, you know, uh, well, Chernyshevsky could have written a less than perfect book, right, from a from a literary point of view, right? So, I mean, it's not as though a character not fitting, uh, you know, is somehow this, like, big interpretive mystery that we have to explain, right? Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, but... But the, the characters in the in the book, um, they, they do really exemplify this kind of uh, heroic uh, vanguard uh, sort of sort of ethos. Um, Rachmedov certainly does, and what's notable, I think, is that uh, in, in both books, the heroes rarely, if ever, uh, kind of question their uh, their their course of action in life. And so uh, in both cases, I think there's the conviction that the heroic thing to do is also the simple and obvious thing to do. Um, there's uh, for, for books that for books that take such a kind of moral and moralistic, uh, if you want to be more critical, uh, stance on the world, there's surprisingly little actual moral reflection in them, uh, in, in the sense of, you know, thinking that there's a, a real mystery to, to be solved here. Uh, you know, Chernyshevsky and Rand both, uh, you know, take this uh, uh, quite uh, forceful approach to uh, uh, the right ethical answer to your dilemma and um uh and well if you're too stupid to see that that's the right answer well that's just you know so much for you uh and and they really and so there again it's not just what i'm trying to emphasize here is that it's not just what they say it's how they say it or it's the it's the tone with which they say it or the kind of aesthetic uh with which they describe what what happens so like uh so where, for instance, on the heroic side of things, um, you know, three characters in, uh, in, in Chernyshevsky's novel, um, you know, kind of defy social convention and live in this house of three uh, and so on. And where the characters in, in Atlas Shrugged uh, kind of wake up and, and realize that, uh, that what they really need to do is to quit supporting this society that's exploiting them. Uh, thus, uh, you know, the, the title of the, uh, of the book. At the same time, uh, you know, both authors kind of give you this this glimpse of what the opposite of that kind of heroism is, and they, they do so, you know, in quite similar terms. Like there's a uh, uh, there's a scene in in what is to be done where it's the last mention of Vera Pavlovna's parents uh, who own this pawnbroking business. And so that's, that's not an accident that, that that's what they do, right? Because they're not actually creating anything. There is, is the implication. They're just kind of uh, living off the, the creation of others, which of course is the, you know, one of the central themes of, uh, of, of uh, Atlas Shrugged. And uh, Chernyshevsky uh, he basically writes what amounts to an obituary 
sorry for uh, uh, Vera Pavlovna's parents, even though technically they're still alive. And basically, so this book is a tale about the new people. And in so many words, he said, these are the, you know, the, the old people, the previous people, and they no longer matter and irrelevant. So off they go. And so they're kind of, in a way, non-people uh, now. And uh, you see the same thing um, in uh, in Atlas Shrugged, um, the, you know, the, the character in there who is uh, kind of an analog for J. Robert Oppenheimer, uh, Robert Stadler is his name. Uh, uh, he gets uh, uh, well effectively nuked uh, by his uh, his own uh, his own creation, and then uh, they're probably the most you know, at least to my mind, what's to be the most poignant example of this is a scene where one of the main characters, John Galt, gets captured and he's being tortured. And uh, uh, one of the other main characters, several of the other main characters kind of organize this rescue effort and they get him out. And uh, uh, one of the uh, the main female character, uh, Dagny Taggart, at one point in the process of getting Galt out, shoots a prison guard. Uh, and she... Uh, she says, and here again, I'm, if this isn't the exact quote, it's, it's pretty close. Uh, she says that uh, she, she squeezed the trigger uh, with no more uh, remorse than she would have as if she had fired at an animal. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you get, you get the sense then that these, these heroic characters who are pursuing their, their passion in life, uh, these, are the, these are the future and uh, uh, this is what the future looks like. And uh, the people who, uh, who can't see that, uh, they become, uh, in effect, non-people. Uh, and, and that's really, that kind of theme, I think, is, is important to, uh, to both books. And so, um, you know, you can, you can see that come out uh, in a lot of ways in, um, you know, one of Rand's followers in this country, a... a um, novelist by the name of Terry Goodkind. There's a, there's a picture of one of his novel covers in my book. Um, wait a minute. Did I, yeah, yeah, that is in the book. And, um, uh, and it has these, you know, very heroic looking kind of statuesque uh, characters on the cover for anybody who's, who's, uh, who's listening. If you just look up, um, uh, Terry Goodkind's uh, sort of truth series and look at, look at his uh, novel covers. Uh, you'll, uh, you'll see what I'm, what I'm talking about. And, and there again, in those novels, the, uh, the people who don't fit the heroic bill become non-people uh, in the, in the end. So it's really a kind of a common, you know, uh, emphasis on heroism there, both in what they say and how they say it. Mm. So you, you have, and yeah, it's, it's a, a heroism that, is kind of tied to a, 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 a lot of things that we kind of uh, we, that we associate with a, a period of perfection. And I was thinking uh, here where you're talking about youth and 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 the the the, the celebration of youth that, that that you again see in in, in both uh, uh, book and in Rand's book as well. Yeah, the uh, you know both of them as as we kind of. Um kind of alluded to earlier, I mean, uh, part of the way to, to compare these, these kinds of books is to ask to whom they appeal. And, uh, uh, you know, lots and lots of people will say, oh, I, you know, I went through a rant phase in my, you know, uh, high school days or my college days or whatever. Um, 
that's a pretty pretty common story, and I've I've said some similar things about uh, you know who who Chernyshevsky appealed to. You know, you had uh, boarding school students, you know, hiding copies of Chernyshevsky under their pillow, and uh, uh, and things like that. So, uh, you know, I've I've uh, seems to me, and uh, you know, I, I'm prepared to hear arguments to the contrary here, but it, it, at least in in Rand's case. I think a lot of the emphasis on the importance of youth uh, goes back to her sense that the the promise of youth was wasted in uh, in Bolshevik Russia. You know that it probably comes across most forcefully in um, in Rand's novel *We the Living*, which is kind of a, a semi autobiographical uh, take on. Uh, uh, growing up in uh, in Bolshevik Russia and, and so on, and, and very much the idea in there uh, uh, comes across that um, that uh, the, the the dreams, the aspirations of youth, uh, you know, they, they rise and then they kind of get stomped down by the you know the leather leather jacketed uh, commissar types, and uh, uh, in Chernyshevsky. Um, you know, there again, you, you very much get the sense uh, that uh, he's kind of written off the older generation, uh, as I kind of alluded to a minute ago, that it's the younger generation that's going to have to carry the torch for a new and better way of seeing uh, the importance of the individual. And uh, and that in doing that, they're going to kind of have to, to uh, uh, put those... Uh, uh, you know, those, those older people, those former people, uh, side. So it's, it's very much a kind of brash, uh, youth focused, um, set of ideas, but both in the sense that, uh, youth is seen as the hope for the future and, uh, the, the, the older generation had better get on board or get out of the way, uh, but but also that that uh, both of these books then as as you might expect uh, you know appeal quite strongly uh, to the younger generation. I mean I'm sure we'd all like to pick up and read a book in which we discover that people just like me are going to be the salvation of the universe. Uh, you know I mean that's that's uh, uh, I, I suppose I don't know uh, maybe confirmation bias is an overly critical way of uh, of putting that point, but. Um, uh, but yeah, they, they, they really do see youth as a, um, as, as a key, as where the, this revolution, whatever it's going to look like, it's going to be the youth, uh, who, uh, who's spearheaded. Hmm. Now you talk in, in the, uh, novel about another, or in your, excuse me, your book about the, uh, another parallel in the two novels, and that is the man God problem. I was wondering if you could briefly explain what that is and, and how we see it in, in both works. So, um, it's been argued with regard to uh, uh, the kind of utopian socialist era. It seems like there's a guy named Jonathan Beecher who proposed this in in, uh, uh, in context of writing a book about uh, Charles Foyer, uh, that one of the first things you have to do if you want to be a kind of radical socialist is find a way to get rid of the problem of original sin. Uh and uh, and that 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 leads us uh, into uh, the kind of the heritage of, of Christianity, uh, which uh, 
proposes that uh, you know man became God in order to redeem uh, that, uh, that that stain of original sin and all the ones that we've uh, we've committed uh, following on that original one. And uh, so, um, in, in particularly, say in the writings of Dostoevsky, for whom you know Christianity and the the heritage of Christianity, and of course uh, you know or the Orthodox uh, uh, branch of, of Christianity specifically, uh, you know the the person of Christ and Christ's uh, uh, coming on earth and so on is really central to his his whole worldview, and so. Uh, as as writers like Chernyshevsky are doing everything they can to turn that on its head, uh, what they end up doing is proposing a reversal of uh, the idea that God became man, and instead they're saying man will become God in this new uh, future, each each person kind of his own uh, individual God. And so uh, you know, there's a scene in um, uh, What is to be Done, uh, that, that seems suspiciously like uh, uh, Rachmedov is preparing for crucifixion, right? Uh, so, you know, here's a clear reference to, you know, the idea of man uh, becoming uh, God here. And, uh, you know, I should mention that there was a whole movement in, um, uh, uh, in kind of late 19th and very early 20th century Russia, which uh, the Russian philosopher Vladimir Solovyov was uh, uh, involved in, uh, that was called God Manhood. In fact, uh, one of Solovyov's uh, uh, some of his uh, writings have been translated to English into English under the title "Lectures on God Manhood." Uh, this was something he thought about quite a bit. And then uh, uh, again, in 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 Rand, uh, her characters, uh, particularly, just focus on John Galt here for time's sake. Um, you know, he gets kind of transfigured uh, in his in his fashion. I, I brought up the torture scene earlier. Uh, he's uh, he's strapped to some sort of infernal machine. I'm trying to think what does Rand call it. It's the it's the Ferris Persuader, I think it's called, uh, named after yes. its inventor, and. Uh, and he's strapped on there in a position as though he's being crucified, right? So with his, his legs together and down and his arms out and, and so on. And uh, so, you know, you could, you could immediately say, ah, wait, wait a minute, Aaron, that sounds an awful lot like sacrifice. And I thought we weren't doing that. Right. But uh, uh, Galt is, is quite, uh, uh, his behavior on the cross, so to speak, is quite a bit different than in the uh, historical accounts of uh, Jesus Christ's crucifixion, where uh, he, he's laughing at the people that are attempting to uh, to torture him. You know, there's this very comical scene, actually, where in the middle of them being torturing him, the machine breaks down and he tells them how to fix it. And uh, it's... Uh, you know, Rand isn't famous for a sense of humor, or at least I don't think she's uh, is. But uh, uh, that really is kind of a funny scene there, and uh, so his his whole attitude is uh, I, you could argue it's it's a little bit like uh, Jesus saying, "Forgive them; they know not what they do." Uh, but at the same time, uh, the the overwhelming sense you get from it is that. Um, uh, uh, you know, all of the people around him are kind of so many ants uh, that, that really just don't matter in uh, in Galt's world. And they, they don't matter so much that he doesn't even have to pay attention when they're actually uh, torturing him. Uh, so, uh, you know, here's kind of a vision from Rand's end of, uh, of the individual man 
uh, kind of becoming uh, becoming God. And and there again, uh, you know, Chernyshevsky and Rand aren't you know they're not pulling this stuff out of out of whole cloth. I mean, in the in the book, I discuss the influence on Chernyshevsky of the German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach, where he talks a bit about how in the future he thinks uh, man will become God. And uh, you know, Sterner, who I brought up earlier, seems to write in that direction too. So you know, you can you can follow these ideas as far back as you want, I suppose. But uh, um, either way. Um, you know, there's there's a very clear sense in in both sets of writings in the in the nihilists in the 1860s and then in, in Rand's later on that uh, the concept of God is kind of an insult to man and that what uh, you know what we should really be doing is replacing what we formerly thought of as God with this new kind of heroic egoist individual. Now, you have all these uh, you, you've identified all these parallels in terms of the big ideas and, and and it can be easy in one sense to say, well, these ideas, because, you know, to go back to something you're saying earlier, are, are, are so self-evident. It's, it's perfectly natural that you would find uh, a, a lot of people coming to that those, those same conclusions. But in your final chapter, you, you talk about. Which which I thought was really interesting. You, you you move away from the notion of of big ideas, and you talk about how in both novels the the, the way that relationships and, and love and, and sex are used are strikingly parallel. How, how they're seen as, as ways of of uh, you know of, of codifying the the themes of the book. It, it's 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 as though the I, the way that Chernyshevsky does it in his book so impressed Rand. That she ends up, uh, you know, having that similar approach with her characters in her most famous novel. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's that's an accurate uh, portrayal of what I'm after. I think, um, you know, both of them, in a way, they're they're trying to show in practice uh, how a series of relationships works if you start out with the right ideas versus if you start out with the wrong ideas. Um, and so, you know, for, in in both cases, what's really, really important is the notion that you got to start out with the right ideas. You know, Rand's famous refrain was check your premises. Uh, you know, so they, in a way, um, both Chernyshevsky and Rand are kind of sketching out a sort of life is logic proof, uh, sort of, uh, uh, ex- existence where you know your your future turns out well or not well depending on uh, the uh, uh, logicality or not of the syllogism by which you live, and uh, so um, uh, the way the way relationships tend to work then and in Chernyshevsky and Rand's novels both really reflects that. So uh, for instance. When when Vera Pavlovna and her husband are still kind of in denial that actually they're they're not really uh, all that much in in love with each other, uh, it just it just doesn't work, uh, and uh, you know they 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 don't they don't get along very well. There we might say there's um, it's not that they dislike each other, it's just that there's really no spark. Uh, Whereas then in, uh, when Vera Pavlovna, um, 
you know, finally ends up with the, the, the person that she should end up with, uh, there's, there's plenty of spark. Uh, now, I mean, that, that's not depicted in a, uh, you know, a particularly explicit fashion, although, you know, for the standards of the 1860s, it certainly was, which is why, you know, the novel was in a lot of ways seen as such a scandalous uh, affair. Um, but uh, uh, there's this great scene um, where Chernyshevsky kind of uh, wryly uh, has the two of them uh, laying in bed together. And, uh, uh, and they're, they're discussing life, uh, the universe and everything as uh, Douglas Adams said. And, uh, uh, and, uh, I'm going to try and come up with the line here, um, where Fyodor Pavlovna says something about, um, you know, calculating your advantage and seeing what's the, what's the best thing for you to do? Uh, what's the most advantageous for you as an individual? And, uh, you can tell that, that sex is about to happen because, uh, uh, her, uh, uh, the, the guy who's who's in bed with her says, and you know what he was he was calculating exactly that his own advantage. You know, it's it's a uh, it's a very it's a very funny way of saying okay, yeah, and then sex happened. You know, uh, so uh, uh, you know if, it seems kind of stilted, and of course, in, in a way, it is. You know, uh, I mean, people don't normally you know say this kind of thing uh, uh, in the uh, in the moment. Uh, but uh, uh, but Chernyshevsky sees every aspect of life as being kind of freighted with either bad or good uh, uh, philosophical uh, principles that are going to make those those aspects of life turn out well or poorly, as the as the case may be. And so even uh, even sex is. Uh, um, uh, which we might think of as, you know, perhaps the most instinctive of uh, human activities, I suppose. Um, even sex is uh, is philosophically freighted, and it's important to it uh, to get it right. And uh, and Rand, of course, does uh, does very much the same thing. Uh, now, you know, probably the most well known. Uh, um, uh, area where where Rand, or instance where Rand deals with sex uh, pretty explicitly is what kind of appears to be a rape scene actually in uh, in the Fountainhead, and then there's there's something kind of similar in um, in in Atlas Shrugged as well, and at some level you know, I, I kind of have to admit defeat on how Rand thinks about sex. Um, I, uh, I, I've never really managed to wrap my head around um, how she thinks people will find sex as she describes it uh, uh, fulfilling. Um, but at the very least, uh, she's doing what uh, the same thing Chernyshevsky is doing, which is imbuing sex uh, with this, uh, this egoist uh, character. And uh, and that really stands out for its uniqueness because of course the uh, if you want to imbue sex with a kind of philosophical character, uh, it would seem like you would end up not with an ultra individualist view of it, but with kind of a um, if I could put it this way, an ultra communitarian view of it. I mean, there are in fact uh, two people here, um, but uh, uh, but. But Rand and Chernyshevsky both, uh, they want to try and reconcile uh, sex with the idea of, of egoism or, or radical individualism. And so 
I think it's less important to try to figure out how they thought sex would actually work and be fulfilling with that kind of principle than it is to observe that both of them end up with what seemed to me like a set of the same problems uh, with, with trying to do that, right? So, you know, maybe they have a rational way of trying to square what looks to me like a circle, uh, but, you know, we don't actually have to answer that to observe that, uh, you know, it's an interesting parallel to note that they seem to start off with similar similar principles and they end up with similar problems, which just kind of reinforces the idea that they're really trying to do the, uh, the same thing here. Mm-hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before, before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Uh, well, I got a couple of ideas. Um, I seem to have this uh, affinity for writing about cranky libertarians. And uh, <laughs> um, there's a, uh, one of the best, actually, American cranky libertarians is this guy by the name of Albert J. Nock. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, uh, but... There's really nothing been done on him, and he's kind of a fascinating character. He wrote this book called Our Enemy, the State, uh, back in the uh, the 19th century, or nah, early early 20th, I think. I, this project is very much in the uh, you know kind of in the in the conceptual stages at this point. But there's really nothing much that's been uh, been done on Nock, uh, and he's kind of a kind of a fascinating character. Uh, just uh, 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 it's kind of an inherent interest, uh, inherently interesting character, I think. And then another uh, uh, another project I kind of have in mind is I've done some work before on the uh, sociological theorist Philip Reef, um, and I'd like to I'd like to do some more on that because uh, you know uh, the. So one of the things I find kind of fascinating about the, uh, you know, historical writing in general or historiography uh, is that theoretically it seems like it's kind of reached a bit of an impasse since the, the uh, that's probably going to get me in trouble with somebody, but I was calling the postmodernism debates uh, back in the, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s and so on. And uh, that was something I was pretty interested in in graduate school. And I've kind of long wondered if... Um, uh, uh, you know, if there might not be a way out of that, that impasse, uh, I think basically everybody just quit talking about it because they were too tired to keep going. And, <laughs> and at least that's maybe you have a different opinion, but that's, that's my impression of, of how those, you know, debates over, uh, you know, objectivity and subjectivity and so on, how those, uh, how those kind of, they did so much conclude as they kind of petered out. And, and uh, uh, Reef has long kind of fascinated me as a sort of uh, writer who might actually offer a way uh, out of that. Uh, probably not a way that's going to be palatable to lots of people, but at least a way out of that. And so I've, I've kind of like to do some more work on, on, on Reef as well. So that's a couple of projects I kind of have in mind for the, uh, the near future here. Well, they, they both sound pretty fascinating, and uh, if they result in a book, I hope we can uh, have you back on the show to talk about them. Well, I'll give you a shout uh, if they if they do so. So thanks for having me, Mark. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Have a wonderful day. I will. You do the same.